When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. I say, Gary, do you like a chatter? I do. Do do you like a natter? I do. Well, you'll like chatter natter. And today's guest, who is it? Who's our guest today? Go on, tell me. It's our great friend, Carol Hope, today, Pete. She loved, not Carol King then, like I said. No, you did say Carol King. No, it's Carol Hope, and we're (laughs) we're very lucky to be in a lovely home today. It's palatial, isn't it? It is. Palatial. I I wish I could sing like Carol King. We well, all wish we could sing like Carol King. <laughs> but you wish you had her money. And here's Luca just strolling past. Uh, how old is he, Carol? 17. Ah. 17 and a half. Oh, well, I hope he's still here when the podcast goes out. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I'm still here when the podcast goes out. <laughs> I'm not so keen on that. I get 50 quid if you die early. Now, um, we, we'd like, we'd, we'd, uh, the way we'd like to start is, is just by... Uh, tell us a bit about yourself, because you, you, didn't, you didn't spring full-formed onto this earth as a, as a distinguished military historian, did you? So, uh, so what, what did you spend most of your life doing? <laughs> Right, well, when I left school, I went into the civil service and from there I went into um, a big insurance PLC. Then I went into local government. What were you doing in all these things? What what was your role? And then I went into admin of a small business. So I've done across the spectrum. And to answer your question, Pete, it was administration mostly. Ooh. Now, uh, did, did you find that a fulfilling career? Did you enjoy it while you were doing it? Um, yes and no. Yes and no. What it really, a, a lot on? of the time, it depended on the team I was working with. And I think that's probably true of a lot of people in, in many occupations. I'd have you down as a people person, Carol. Is that fair? We've been on lots of battlefield tours together and you seem to get on with people very well. Yes, I would say so. Although it has been a kind of progression, because I believe it or not, Gary, I used to be painfully shy when I was young. Me too. <laughs> Gary was painfully shy. Gary won an international competition for the world's shyest person in Gallipoli. In Gallipoli, yeah. Oh, I don't believe With this believe absolute it was lunatic woman, it was the loudest. <laughs> anyway, um, so that's that. Right now, uh, so so uh, so, when did you retire? What year would that be? Oh, that's a good question, Pete. Um, probably round about 2010. 
Well, you, you were a writer before this, though. Uh, uh, so, so forgetting the historian part, we'll come back to tours these, but you'd always liked writing stuff, hadn't you? Oh, you know, absolutely. Words and things like that. Oh, Gary yeah, absolutely. Say. Yeah, yeah. I've always been a writer. So, you know, I didn't mind uh, writing essays for um, history and English literature at school. I was quite happy to write thank you notes for relatives, for presents. Um, oh, I hated that. <laughs> I, I used mean, to sign my sister's one. I, I would, <laughs> and me, Peter. <laughs> I would even do the best job I possibly could if I was writing a letter of complaints. I used to correct the spelling in toilets. <laughs> <laughs> so similar start in life. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so, so the history. Had you retired by the time you started going on battle filters, and what made you go on the first one? Because it's it's not something normal people do, as we've discovered running a battle filter yeah. company. No, I hadn't retired. Um, I was still working, and the reason I went on the first one was because I was at the end of my open university degree, and the last module that I studied for that covered the Second World War and the First World War, not so much from a military history point of view, but from a social and political history point of view. But it kind of got me, um, uh, gave me a spark for interest in the military side. So I decided to um, have a go at a battlefield tour. And did you know anyone else on the tour when you went on it, or did you just go? Um... Yeah, um, the very first one I went on, I went with my ex-husband. Oh, he's a swine. We never liked him, <laughs> did we, Gary? No, no I, went, I went on a few battlefield tours with him. <laughs> yeah, he's a lovely man, actually. When was the first one? Was it Western Front? Um, it was, a, husband? It no. was a ledger no. tour. Am I allowed to say yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. It was a ledger tour, and we did a whistle-stop tour um, introductory, one of their introductory whistle stops of the Ypres Salient and the Somme. And did you enjoy it? Yes, I did very much. Partly because um, some of the people were very sociable, <laughs> so we had a good time from that point of view, but um, also because just the subject was engrossing. That's right, it is, isn't it? We found that. Yeah, we have. Now, some of the battlefield tours we've been on, you and I have been to Gallipoli together. Um, we've been to Normandy, uh, where we uh, um, discovered our talents for um, camouflage. Cam bar. camouflage <laughs> sticking <laughs> our heads in a bush, as I recall. We'll put that video up. But some of, some of the terrain, Gallipoli particularly, is difficult. Yeah. Um, but uh, you, you've always had a go at stuff. Would you say that's in your nature to have a go at things? Oh yeah, absolutely. I can remember one of the very first tours I did on the Western Front. Um, with, uh, it was led by a chap called Tony Noyes. Some people out there might know that name. And um, it was in the Ypres Salient and I can't remember the name of the site we were at. But he had ventured onto some a really muddy patch of ground to get from A to B and I was just about to follow him when he fell through into about two foot of really muddy, stinky, horrible, swirly stuff and I just about managed to avoid it. Such was my eagerness to follow after him. 
<laughs> well, if you could remember where that is, uh, you, if you could let me know, I'd like to take Pete there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, looking forward to that. <laughs> I'm sure Andy would probably remember. <laughs> That's Andy, uh, Andy Tom. Andy Tom. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, who I believe is uh, featuring in a, in a future Chattanatta. So yes, well, so, yeah. I, so I understand. Now, um, so, uh, so, so, so what should we do? What should we talk about next? Uh, so you started going on Battlefield Tours. Uh, did you take, uh, did you join any of the associations concerned with? Uh, yeah, I joined the Western... Was it particularly the Great War? It, yeah, it was. Um so you, yeah, I mean, I'd always I'd had an interest in the Second World War during my Ooh. teens because <laughs> because you know my parents were of that generation, so you know you as a um, child I heard all about the uh, air raid shelter stories and all that sort of thing, um, and I did actually do a lot of reading about the Second World War, but again it was mostly from the political side rather than the military history side. Um, but once I actually started visiting the battlefields, it was it was only First World War. So, so that was the Western Front Association, and so that then, springs yeah. to mind, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, on on the the first tour, we went to Tok H, of course, Poppering, and um, they had a leaflet there for the Western Front Association, so I picked it up and joined. And. Uh, uh, so, so the Western Front Association, uh, and, and, and you, did you go to meetings? Um, not for a few years, no. Um, I, I did venture to one, but didn't really find it very friendly. And that was kind of in the days when I was a bit more um, like a person who just stay in the background and wait for other people to approach me rather than be proactive. So it kind of put me off, but then eventually I started going. Did, did you find it a male environment, if you, if you see what I mean? Yeah, mostly, mostly a male environment, yeah. Do you think Until that's changing? Recently. It is changing, yeah, yeah, definitely it's changing. There's a, a bigger percentage of women going now. Mm. That's good. Yeah, that's excellent. Well, I mean, you know yourself, Pete, when you've come to the Sussex branch, which I attended many years uh, quite a few women who attended that branch yeah it, it is good that uh, the, 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 the range of people is, is broadening that they're taking interest in the West Front um, now uh, so let's look at how you move towards your, your first book what's the process because there you are uh, uh, not much of an attender of the Western Front Association what's the process that leads you towards writing your first book which is a uh, worshipy sausagey thing uh, worshipper and worshipped uh, all right Worshipy sausagey things, as close as I ever got. It st <laughs> sticks in my mind because I've served under a few priests. <laughs> I bet you are. Hey, you, you were going in for the priesthood at one point, weren't you? Oh, yes. <laughs> um, now, so, so yeah, the book's worshipper and worshipped. I'm pretending because, of course, I reviewed that book. I remember, I remember it well. It uh, occupied me a fair time <laughs> reading it at uh, 741 pages um but but tell um, let's let's get on the book later let's talk about the writing process and and what made you want to do it because it is a big step for, for anyone to write their first book yeah it certainly is i mean by this time um i'd um started going a bit more to meetings um, and I acquired a copy of the first um, biography of Father Doyle, 
which was published in 1919 by a fellow Jesuit. What and was that called, if you remember? I, I, it's terrible to be put on the spot, so... Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll put a posting up of, of the other reading, so, yeah. Yeah. Do you know, I can't remember. Was, I it, a, it, was it a rattling good read? <laughs> <laughs> Look, these Jesuits, they've got some interesting habits, I'll tell you. We'll come on to some of them later Well, on. it was 500 and something pages, Peter, and the last, say, off the top of my head... 180 pages were his war service. I read that. The rest of it, I just kind of turned page after page, quickly skimming through. Gasp. When was this, Carol? When, this, this was 2000, I think it was 2006 or 2007, something like that. Um, so that's quite a long time ago. It uh, is quite a long time and, ago, And was yeah. that what gave you the idea? Well, yeah. I mean, having, uh, uh, having acquired this um, biography, it was suggested to me that this would make a good subject for a talk to the Western Front Association. Who suggested that? That was Andrew again. Andrew Tong. He so seems to a lot. So Andy gave me the book and suggested maybe it might be a good subject for a talk to the WFA. And then, having read the back of the book, The War Service Only, um, I decided that I really liked um, the sound of this character, um, the fact that he was such an engaging writer, um, and the fact that these letters were written directly from the, the Western Front and sent home, um, so it was really good primary source material. Um, so I decided to have, have a go at um, doing my own biography. And did you have a religious bent at all? Was it no. was the attraction that he was a religious man? No, no. And in fact, um, part of the problem with writing it and promoting it ever since is the fact that um, I, I am wary of the fact that I'm not religious um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of maybe I'm, I might be treading on, on toes. Um, you've got to be very careful with um, how you phrase things. I remember that because I remember my review. I had to, had to be edited because I'd offended some of your readership. Mm. Uh, in my forthright descriptions of the character of this man. Mm, yeah, uh, yeah. But, but it just seemed a good project, really, to begin with. I mean, I don't really know to begin with whether I seriously thought I would publish it, but because I'd always wanted to write a book, and in my head it was always going to be a fiction book, but never really got the, the spark for a novel. I had, I had a few ideas for novels, but could never really think the plot through. Um, so I just decided, well, here's a story that's already um, presented to me. I know what the story is. I've just got to kind of try and write around it. Now, how did you find a, a, a publisher? Um, that's a good question. I think it's because the, the actual publisher attended the Sussex branch, WFA, and at the time was heavily into promoting his publishing service. Who did publish it, Carol? It's Revive Revi Press, which is a, an imprint of Tommy's Guides. All right. And um, 
So, so how much help did you get from your publisher in writing? Because, because, as you know, I get loads of help in writing my books, not just from friends who are amazing, but also from yeah. uh, copy editors and proof checkers and the rest of it. How much, uh, how much of a help uh, to a new author did Ravale Press give you? Well, I mean, the, the website is helpful. Lots of guidelines on the on the on the website, and if I was to email with a query, I always got a response. Um, but as far as things like, for example, um, if I wanted um, it, any proofreading done, I would have to pay extra for it. But the printer, the sorry, the publisher would source that for me in the index. He would source it for me, but I would have to pay for it. So, Ooh. <laughs> uh, yeah, I get the picture. Now, um, uh, how did you choose what, and this, I'm trapping you here, I'm going to say it before I start. How did you choose what material to leave in and what to, uh, and, and what to take yeah, out? Yeah, that is a trap, isn't it? Yeah, the, well, trap. as you know, the Peter. 741 should be yeah, a Yeah, well, as you know, Peter, I, I suppose maybe I didn't really have that much confidence in how it would sell anyway, so I just decided to ignore all the advice all the advice was was to um, you know pitch it to a certain readership and um, you I, mean either religious either lunatic the religious or, or the military Murphy. history um, and of course my book does both so it falls between the two stalls really because um, you know it, it's not totally focused on one or the other it, it's both now as you uh, uh, now, Gary hasn't read this book, uh, so that's why I'm sort of taking the lead on this. Uh, Gary, for some reason, I think well, also you never let me get a word in edgeways. That is the reason. <laughs> I hate him. <laughs> um, as you're writing it and you're doing all of it, um, and I know what I think of it, but he's a funny man. Yeah. And I don't mean funny, ha ha. He's definitely strange in some of his beliefs. And actions and some of the things if you were to describe them especially the flagellation stuff and the nettles I always remember the nettles but is he strange or is it the the Jesuit sect for want of a better word I was trying not to be well both in my view but uh, I I think possibly some of our listeners might take offense Uh, let's keep it to him Um, but but did you find did you find him strange in some of his belief systems that, that were very strong? Well, yeah, I suppose I did. But, I, I mean, what I put it down to is you've got to remember that this man was born in 1873 in the, in the Victorian era. We're now looking at him from a perspective of the 21st century. He was born in the 19th century. Is that, that's right, yeah, isn't that's it? Right. Yeah, so um, he, 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 he was born in a, a, to a Catholic family, a devout Catholic family um, in Ireland. So, and, and he had a Jesuit education. So when, when you look at it in those terms, is it really that peculiar? It's peculiar to us, but he was a man of his times. That's brilliant. That's entirely what I was trying to say but failing miserably. <laughs> I do remember one of his quotes, and I'm just reading it here, and it was, in spite of all the misery and suffering caused, this war will turn out to have been the biggest act of God's love, saving the souls of scores of poor fellows. So, 
scores of poor fellows will be saved so the war's all right. I find him really weird. Yeah, well, again, the thing is, is that, that that's a personal letter written to a member of his family who would know where he was coming from. And the thing as well you've got to, that, that you can bring into the equation is that pre-war, he was, his, his job, if you like, as a member of the Jesuit order was um, to be a missioner um, and um, a leader of retreats. Now, missions were something that occurred um, in a church and anybody from the general population could go to a mission that was conducted over a number of days usually. A retreat was something a bit more um, upmarket if you like and it was generally only middle, middle class people that, that went on retreats. And his ambition pre-war had been to bring retreats to the working man. And he only managed to run a retreat for working men once before he became a chaplain. And I think probably in his head, he's thinking, well, you know, he can, he can provide this service as part of his army chaplaincy. And when did he join the army? Well, he volunteered in November 1914, but he didn't actually um, get his commission until a year later, November 1915. And I think that may have been partly to do with recruitment to the 16th Irish Division. It, maybe it was a bit, bit slower than other divisions. And also, I think uh, it was the case that is... Um, employers, if you like, wanted to hold on to him for as long as possible. Now, the book does go into some detail about the role that he fulfilled as a chaplain in the army. Um, in a recent podcast, we used the phrase... Um, oh, I've forgotten the phrase. <laughs> um, <laughs> if only I'd... <laughs> but uh, sort of hedging your bets with God oh, well, just before yeah. you go into it's celestial, to battle. Celestial, celestial insurance, insurance policy, policy yes. yeah. Thank you, Pete. Um, and that is a large part of the role, it strikes me, with, um, with Father Doyle. I'm still laughing at that unforgettable phrase. <laughs> that unforgettable phrase I forgot, yeah. Do you think that was his role when he went into the army? Forget all the, you know, the, uh, the other stuff that Pete puts in his review. It strikes me that he very clearly understood what the role of the chaplain was. Oh yeah, absolutely, and um, it just that really just harks back to what I was just saying about how he wanted to reach out to the ordinary rank and file men in the army. And he's brave, isn't he? Or, or sorry, but in the letters he comes across as brave. Well, it's not it's not so much the letters; it's the first-hand testimony after his death. There were there's loads of first-hand testimony after his death to say how brave he was and that's the reason for the title of the book because he was a worshipper of God but apparently the men absolutely worshipped the ground that he that he um, walked on. 741 that, pages now managed not to notice that. I mean that that's I never a, thought of that. That's oh, a, complete that's an actual quote from someone that the men worship the ground that he walked on. 
And he did get as far forward as he could, didn't he? Into as far to, as close to the front line as he possibly could. Oh, yeah. Um, a couple of times um, he was told to... Um, he wasn't allowed, allowed to go f any further forward, um, but he always went as far forward as he could when circumstances allowed, and that's why, in the end, ultimately, he was killed. Now, he was with the uh, first the 8th Royal Irish Fusiliers, and mm. then he was with the uh, 8th Dublin Fusiliers, yeah. and that's important for what your second book, if you see what I mean. Uh -huh. uh, but um, uh, the letters... And what attracted you first is the, the quality of his writing yes. in those letters, isn't it? Yes. Because he, he does give a fantastic... I mean, I've read them and I really liked him. And he also comes across as a really likeable bloke yeah. as well, contrary to the, the, uh, his earlier writings where he doesn't come across, to my mind, as particularly mm. likeable. His letters home and, and the letters from the front are good, aren't they? They're interesting. They are very interesting, yeah, and, and amusing in, in a lot of cases and self-deprecating, I think, in a lot of cases. Whereas before, you might not have thought that of him in the earlier letters that you read. Certainly, the ones home from the front, that's the case. The, um, uh, Gary, you, you, you've never been self-deprecating, have you? <laughs> Can't really say it, can you? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad you've come to me. I mean, one of the problems that strikes me, Carol, is that he is a likeable man, he does have a sense of humour, but he does seem to think that everything's preordained and that, that God is sort of creating the path. And indeed, at one point, he, he believes he's got a guardian angel, doesn't he, looking after him? Yeah, I mean, it, I suppose that's a bit of a joke, really, because it's only subsequently that um, I found out that um, the, the usual Christian um, tradition is that you have two forenames, or two Christian names. Um, in the Catholic faith, a lot of the time, they'll have a third name, which is a name that they're given on um, either baptism or confirmation. And so Gabriel was his baptismal or, or confirmation name. I'm not sure. I think it was the baptismal name. Um, so, yeah, he made a joke of the fact that the angel Gabriel was looking, out, looking over him. Didn't do a very good job, did he? Ultimately, no. <laughs> to a point? No. <laughs> to a point in about, what, 1970? <laughs> Perhaps he was on his holidays. Um, now, um, uh, you, you go into considerable detail with supporting uh, testimonies, text, um, um, descriptions, accounts about, about his death. Uh, how, how do you feel about the way he was killed and, and, and just just what happened to him? Because you, you must have developed a real personal feeling towards him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose, um, <laughs> a bit like you really, I suppose in the end it's a bit of an anticlimax because here's this chap who's always managed to avoid um, even a wound as such. He's, he, he was very lucky on one occasion um, when... Um, a box of very lights exploded in um, a headquarters dugout and he'd literally left there a few hours beforehand and in the dugout at the time there were there were seven or eight um, officers of the battalion all of whom were wounded and he had left there pre a couple of hours It was probably his fag as he was leaving. <laughs> 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 probably left just saw, see you lads! <laughs> 
<laughs> I'd just like to paraphrase what Carol said there. She started that with a bit like you, really. A bit of an anti-climax. <laughs> yes, I noticed that. Is she meaning my career as a glorious <laughs> oral historian? In- no, th- th- thinking it's a, a, an well. anti-climax at this chap who had avoided so, mu- so, so many dangers before, got through so many scrapes before, was convinced that, you know, he had a guardian angel looking after him. Um, and then in the end, he gets, he, he gets killed. And where was he killed? He was, he was killed in front of a dugout along by the, the ruler's railway line, the Ypres ruler railway line. So they'd moved up to the Flanders area? Yeah. And that's yeah. 16th of August? So it's 16th of August, yes. This is on the Fretzenberg Ridge. I, I never know whether I, I've pronounced that right, Friesenberg, Me and Gary think it was perfect. <laughs> I don't think that's any reassurance for you. Yeah, so he had been um, manning with the medical officer. He had been manning um, an aid post, which um, was actually just glorified um, gun pits. So shallow gun pits and um, the attack kicked off, I can't remember, the early hours of the morning, four o'clock, something like that. I can't can't quite remember. and about nine o'clock, uh, the enemy were spotted counter-attacking. So the commanding officer told Father Doyle and the medical officer that they had to vacate the aid post and go back behind the lines, which they did. But um, I don't know of the exact timing, but probably a couple of hours later, um, Father Doyle decided that he, he couldn't stay he had to get back to the front line, so he went back to the aid post, which was now just being run by a corporal. Um, and a message came in that there were a couple of officers that had been wounded in the front line by the railway line. So Father Doyle and his servant went out to try and give them aid, rescue them. One of them had been killed, but one of them um, was still alive, so they dragged him back to a um, a pillbox, um, and unluckily a shell exploded nearby, and the officer and Father Doyle were killed by the shell, but the uh, his servant was okay. Who was uncomplaining? <laughs> <laughs> um, now there, there, there were efforts after his death to get him a BC, which. Fairly standard for these people who die. There's usually a campaign. What, how do you feel about that? Do you think he deserved one, or, or do you just think it's just things they do? Yeah, I don't know. Um, you don't engage it uh, terribly. You, you seem to want him to get a VC, but you wouldn't expect him to now, would you? Well, see, the difficulty is is that if you um, research the VC. As I recall, it's only supposed to be awarded, or it was at the time, only supposed to be awarded for a single action. In the presence of the enemy? Yes. So any cumulative actions didn't qualify. Now, if you look at the VC for uh, another chaplain, Theodore Bailey Hardy, you will find 
that his VC citation references actions on about three different days for the award of the VC. So if you take if you take that and apply it to Father Doyle, the reason I think maybe he might have deserved a VC when you compare it to Hardy is that in the in the two weeks that the um, Royal Dublin Fusiliers were in the front line, and I'm not just talking about the 8th Battalion, I'm talking about the 9th Battalion and the 2nd Battalion as well, but or, or the 48th Infantry Brigade, shall we say, that in the front line leading up to the 16th of August, Father Doyle actually stayed in the front line even when his own battalion went back to the rest camp because the other chaplain of the brigade, Father Frank Brown, had been called back to the Irish Guards, which was his original regiment, and no one came to take his place. So Father Doyle stayed in the front line with the men of the 9th Royal Dublin Fusiliers when the 8th Royal Dublin Fusiliers went back. So he had no rest um, and was putting himself at risk. So if you, if you look at it kind of from that point of view, plus the action of going out actually on the 16th of August to try and aid the two officers that were in distress, one killed, one wounded, and try and bring them back to safety, then maybe, yes, perhaps he did did deserve the VC. It is a lottery, isn't it, sometimes? But it is a lottery, yeah. I mean, I, I don't subscribe to the view of, um, you know, um, what do you call it? Um, retrospective. Retrospective, yeah. I don't think any of us do, do we? Well no. done. It's ridiculous. Um, now, the... Um, I know when I read the book, uh, eventually I was on his side. Uh, I, I, I had 500 pages of eight in him, <laughs> but he won me over with his letters as he won you over. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, it is a, a great book. It's it's interesting book. Yeah, I believe uh, you, you've announced plans to, to edit it uh, and do what you're told in the first bloody place, if you see what I mean. <laughs> uh, is that true? Well, I'd like to have a go at it. The only problem is... Go is at what? Just explain for them, because I'm editing it down, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the problem is I have started, so what I've done is I now have a file just of his letters, his war letters, but that file is 88,000 words on its own. So the second book, the Frank Laird book, is something like... 110,000 words in total. So if you've got 88,000 words of Father Doyle's letters, it doesn't give you an awful lot of scope to write context around to, to, to try and keep it to a decent size. So perhaps I'm going to have to do, you know, even more severe editing of the actual letters. Chop, could, chop, choppy. We could help with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it sounds great. Well, I'm, I hope you do manage to do it because I, I, I think I think the book as it is is great. But I think uh, uh, as a military person, uh, uh, military interests, I, I think I'd prefer to see it mm. just about yeah. this wartime yeah. service. Yeah, now, um, now this led you towards your second book, didn't it? Now, now. Um, I've, uh, I've left my notes behind. So Gary's going to guide us through this. Uh, Gary likes to take over things. Um, 
And I know Gary has read and enjoyed this book enormously, so he'll be able to provide his own insights into it. Uh, uh, so over to you, Gary, about, uh, and over to you, Carol, about the second book. What's that called, and, and who gave you the idea for the title? <laughs> it's called Frank Speaking, and the two gentlemen sitting in front of me gave me the idea for now, the title. Now, we said frankly. <laughs> you did say frankly, yeah, but I thought Frank was better. Well, now for this book, Carol, you, you've um, taken a different route to the publishing, haven't you? I have, yes. I've totally self-published it myself, yes. And it's... Uh, H and K Publishing. Yes, yes. Hope and Night. Oh, hope. So, not the night part of it. Well, one assumes your listeners know that the hope part of it is me, and the night and the night part of it is Lindsay Knight, who never um, heard of Works with Taff. Who works with Taff and did the Taff Taff Gillingham and did the design for the for the dust cover and the designs inside. Now, more and more people are, are, are taking this route because they're, they're unwilling to, to entrust their life's work, as, uh, as it often is, to the, uh, and I'm using Pete's notes here, the uh, grubby hands of small publishers. I would never have said anything like that. Um, I love small publishers. Why did, you, why did you decide to do it differently this time? And on a generic basis, not for any specific reason, but just why? Because it's hard work, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, well, number one, it's a challenge. Um, number two, it gave me complete control over the project. Um, and, and, num- um, and as uh, part of number two is the fact that I had... Again, I had very fi- a fixed idea about how I wanted it presented, so I didn't want to have to conform to the house style of a particular publisher. Uh, whereas with the first one, it didn't didn't make much difference either way. With the second one, I wanted um, to conform to a particular style and not the house style of a publisher. Now it also means, of course, that you've got to sell the book, Carol. Yes. So. It, it, was that a decision because uh, some of the publishers do uh, uh, at simultaneous remaining and, and selling to cut price bookshops? Are you trying to avoid that in doing this? Well, yes, there is an element of that, of course, because, because um, this book can always be printed on demand. So, for example, I have four copies left of my original print run. I can put in an order this afternoon when you've gone and say I need another 50 um, and the printer will run them off of course I've got to pay for them which then means I'm, I'm, them. I'm yes exactly so I'm I, I'm always um, you know I'm always paying out before I can recoup anything so that would put a lot of people off wouldn't it, it would. but if you've got if you're at a stage of life like I am, where you're retired and you've got a certain amount of disposable income, well, I could go to the bookies and use some of that disposable income there. I could spend all day in the pub. I could be on the golf course. I could be doing all sorts of things. With you've my, just described with, Gary's life. With, <laughs> equally, you could waste it, Carol. With my disposable income. But I've decided to use my disposable income to do this instead. 
So hopefully, nice. hopefully I won't end up too much out of pocket. Hopefully I might even be in credit one day. But well, I have seen you in the pub and the bookies, <laughs> to be fair. Now, what's Frank speaking about? Frank speaking. Yeah, it's it, it, the subject of the book is called Frank Laird. And Frank Laird was um, a 35-year-old, mild-mannered civil servant working in the Dublin Metropolitan Police Court when war broke out in 1914. Um, well, when I was researching the Father Doyle book, um, there are some studies by Irish authors, one in particular, Miles Dungan, um, where he does a kind of lost voices type type of book so takes various themes and and runs with that um but but not an in-depth study if you know what i mean so frank laird's name came up a, a few times in those books um and then i think i might have googled him and i found that there was this unfinished memoir um that it's a very rare book isn't it it is a very rare book and yeah. it was by Frank Laird. Yes, yes. What happened was, um, having survived the war, um, it, I, I don't know ex exactly what year, but sometime in the early 1920s, he was asked to give a talk at the uh, local, his local branch of the Old Comrades Association um, about his experiences as a prisoner of war. So he obviously wrote up... Um, the circumstances that led to his capture by the Germans and his experiences as a prisoner of war for this talk. Having done that, his wife then suggested to him that he write up all of his experience. So he then went back to 1914, started from the beginning and was working his way towards March 1918 when he was taken prisoner of war but unfortunately he died he, t he took ill and died um, before he joined the two up so he's there's a gap in the memoir between the end of the battle of messines in 19 june 1917 and his um the circumstances of his being taken prisoner of war in March 1918. Now this is based on um, personal experiences of the Great War, an unfinished manuscript published shortly after his death. Yes, by uh, his wife. Was, that's the name of it, is it? That's the name of it. So if anybody's interested, you can look that up on Google, presumably. <laughs> you, you won't can. get one. I've looked. No, but I, I will say, although this might affect my... Oh, all those book sales that are flooding in at this very moment but I would say that if you do google it you will find that there is um, a transcription available online um, for a very small amount of money. We'd rather have the original from say, you. I was going to say <laughs> is it too late to ask for my money back? <laughs> you haven't paid any. Yes, yeah but you would only get Frank Laird's transcription you wouldn't get carol's you insights would, no, that's and true. you wouldn't you wouldn't get to know what happened to him between june 1917 and march 1918 
Exactly, Carol. Now we're introduced to him. Uh, we get an early look at his background, but we're really interested in, in his role in the Great War. And he's recruited into D Company of the 7th Royal Dublin Fusiliers, isn't he? Indeed he was, yes. They're a fine body of men. Now we follow them through their training, yep. uh, which they do in Ireland, yep. uh, in the exotic sun-drenched fields of uh, uh, Basingstoke after that. Yep. He's um, sun-drenched Before they board the Alunia for the long voyage out to uh, Mytilene, is it? Yeah. yeah, I've no idea how you pronounce now, that. Now, this is where the excitement begins, isn't it, Carol? It is, yes. So, tell us what happens once they're there. So, they land at Suvla on the 7th of August, don't they? Yes, so they land at um, Nibrasini or Nibrasini Point. Nibranesi. Or, yeah, there's Nibranesi, lots of ways to pronounce yeah, it. whatever. Um, point on the 7th of um, August 1915. Um, which of course is the, the south of Suvla Bay. They were originally supposed to land at the north, at the top end, but some kind of circumstances, I can't quite remember. They worried meant about that, mines. That, yeah, meant that they had to land in the south. Now you, you name-checked various characters uh -huh. throughout, and there's some, uh, some wonderful quotes from uh, Henry Hanna, whose book also focuses on D Company, and it's uh -huh. called The Pals at Suvla Bay, uh -huh, yeah. which I think you, I've got, that, got a copy. That cost a fortune, that really costs a fortune as well, as you know, and uh, I have an original copy which costs so much that my, 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 uh, my naughty daughter, as they say, my bad daughter, I've got two, uh, wanted, uh, wanted me to hand over a whole, whole book collection to her because when I die she wants to sell it. Based on that one, it's well over a hundred pounds. Uh, yeah, well, we. But you could get a reprint yeah. for uh, well, a tenner. Well, we've got a copy of the original as well. It's yeah. a, it's a lovely book. It the is illustrations a book. in it are, are, are wonderful. Now, there's other material also from the history of the Tenth Irish Division, uh, which further helps story story flow and it explains the bigger picture, doesn't it? Because it's mm -hmm. not just about him on Suvla Bay, is it? No, no, although I do do ma mainly only focus on D Company, 7th Royal Dublin Fusiliers, um, I do bring some other units into the picture. Well, you explain um, what's happening, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, as and when you need it to progress the story, but I'm not, I'm not trying to give an overall history of the landings at Suvla, I'll leave that to Peter. Yeah. So what happens to, to Frank Laird? Lucky Frank, they used to call him. Lucky Frank, what could have gone wrong? What happens? Well, first of all, um, along with his, his comrades, he has to embark on um, a long trek around the Salt Lake because they landed at the wrong point. So inst instead of um, landing at the top, which would mean they'd have a straight line kind of thing to get to, to Chocolate Hill where the um, previous divisions, the 11th Division who had gone before them were fighting. So now they've had got to go on this long trek along the shoreline and around the Salt Lake. Um, which was dry. Yeah, and we'll put, up, <laughs> we'll put up either a picture or a map, won't we, to help will people you? understand. <laughs> Yes, you will, Peter. Oh, so, I mean, he, he didn't actually um, take part in the fighting for Chocolate Hill because the previous units that had um, preceded them 
um, were taking part in the fighting for that. Um, but he was doing things like um, carrying ammunition and scattering it um, along the ground, him and his some of his comrades, so that um, troops that might either be coming back or going forward would be able to retrieve the, the supplies. Um, and then on the 9th of July, two days after landing, he was sheltering in um, a ditch and um, got hit by a sniper. So the bullet went into his, can't, me can't remember which way round it is now, but um, went into his, I think it was his right shoulder and affected his lungs and his ribcage. Now he's evacuated off of... Uh... Yes, yeah, so now he's got a long, long wait um, for stretcher bearers to evacuate, evacuate him back to the beach. Um, and then eventually he gets into the tented hospital at Lemnos. And then back to the UK? And then, yep, yeah, on a ship, the Cowdor Castle, back to the UK. And he recovers? He recovers, yeah, and then he's sent on um, home duty in Dublin to um, Wellington Barracks. Um, and it's there that he um, witnessed the Easter Rising. No, sorry, the Royal Barracks. So on Easter Monday, day off, off he went with some chums, intending to go for a walk up the Dublin mountains. Or oh, a walk. <laughs> and um, on, on route, they met some... Um, soldiers who were, I think they, they weren't soldiers, they were um, volunteer corps coming back from the Dublin mountains um, warned them that the uprising was taking place. They'd had intelligence of it, um, not to go any further. So he retreated back into Dublin, didn't make it as far as Royal Barracks um, because of the intensity of the fighting and went into Wellington Barracks and he saw out the rest of the Easter Rising in Wellington Barracks, during which time I think he was promoted from private to corporal. The most important <laughs> promotion in a man's life. Yeah, but he probably only had it once. Yeah. Some, the, the, the really supremely, supremely good soldiers are promoted two, three, four times from private to Yes. Now he applied for a commission, didn't he, in the Army Service Corps? Yes, What happened did. there? Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> At least I think that's all through him there. <laughs> yeah, it was oversubscribed apparently, so he ended up in the poor bloody infantry. And in July 1916 he was posted for training to the officer's cadet battalion at the Curra. Yes, indeed he was, yes. yes. So, in January 1917... Where does he get dispatched to, for want of a better word? <laughs> yeah, so um, having... Um, disembarked at Itarpla. I think he spent one night there and then um, was sent on the train to um, the Ypres salient to the quiet um, zone um, in the Messines area. And who was he serving with then? So now he's in the 8th Royal Dublin Fusiliers. Oh, that's the same as one as uh, Father, Father Doyle. Doyle. Exactly, yes. Hence your, uh, and that's the, the connection. Mm -hmm. uh, they talk about each other? Uh, in Frank Laird's book, 
in his memoir, yes, he references Father Doyle a couple of times. Does Doyle yeah. mention Laird in his letters? No. Oh. No. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. Now, again, it, he's, he's relatively humorous, isn't he, Frank Laird? Yeah. Oh, it's a good read. Yeah. Um, humorous in a different way to Father Doyle, because Father Doyle was also very amusing, but he's got a very... Frank Laird's got a very wry, understated sense of humour, and sometimes you read something and it doesn't quite connect, and then about 20 seconds later you giggle because you, you realise what it is he said. Now, there are gaps in, in Frank Laird's original manuscript, aren't there, Carol? So how did you fill those gaps? Yeah, well, there's one big gap. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I... Uh, Gary. <laughs> it's not the size of the gap, it's what you do with it. <laughs> well, there were, there were three sources, really. There was the Battalion War Diary. So dull and made up. There was... Frank Laird's personal file held at the National Archives and luckily I'd already um, taken photographs of the contents of that some years before I started really writing it all up so lockdown didn't affect me on that and then of course there was Father Doyle's letters because a lot of um, what Frank Laird would have experienced would have been what was described by Father Doyle during that period. And what did you find out from these various sources? Uh, well, I found out that, for example, the Battalion War Diary told me that Frank Laird had be was wounded on the 10th of August 1917 um, by a shell so that's six days, my photographic memory may be causing me some trouble here, six days before... Um, the Battle uh, of Langmark. Six days before Thingy was killed. Yes. Thingy. Well, my photographic memory let me down badly <laughs> yes. in the name of Father Doyle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this is, a, this is a period when, I mean, you had Third Deep start, started the 31st of July and, of course, didn't make the gains that um, it was supposed to make. Um, and then you had another couple of... Um, I found this bit of the book fascinating because the, what happened to 16th Div and, and the story melds with 16th Div and they're mm. really badly treated. They're yeah. used as working parties. Yeah. They're in the line, they're holding yeah. the line, they're working parties. Burial, and then they have to go over the top. parties. And then they have to go over the top and, and then they do badly and everybody says... Exactly. And yeah. it, it is quite hard on them and, and yeah. this is very much part and of the story. And if you look at their starting strength, I mean, you look at the, 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 the strength of the battalions after the battle, but you look at the strength of the battalions before the battle, it's a real eye-opener. Yeah. So during that period that Peter said, when they're backwards and forwards from the front line to camp, and when they're, when, even when they're back at camp, they only stay there sometimes 24, 36 hours before they're back to the front line again, um, they're used as burial parties, carrying parties. They sustain lots of casualties from shell fire, gas, sickness, you name it. And, and, and it's during this period, as you say, that Frank Laird is now hit by shrapnel and he gets a, 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 a wound in, in his head. Doesn't sound good. You'd be all right, Gary, but most of us would... Uh, that would... Uh gives a lot of trouble now we'd better crack on a bit because I'm, I'm keeping an eye on the clock uh, but uh, what uh, what uh, what what happens next to it so basically he's out again so he's out again yeah and and, and as, as I say from 
from now on until March, I don't really know what happened to him other than the fact that there's, you know, he's recuperating. And I know that when he signed off to go back into into active service he was at a location in Grimsby so you can you can kind of you I know I can see why he wanted to get, want to get out he wanted to get back to the front wouldn't he now he goes out to uh, I've got, forgot what it is it's an entry it's, it's a, the 20th entrenching in, twen- battalion yeah, it's an entrenching battalion yeah. and it's clear I mean I'm not surprised but it doesn't do it because he, he, he's had two bad wounds already yeah, yeah, yeah. but then uh, the, the, all hell breaks loose yeah, yeah. and every, it's every man to the front and yeah, he's sent yeah. forward to the regular battalion is it the second uh, first yeah, Royal first, first, first Royal WPC yeah. and he lasts with them exactly well hardly any time at all really because couple, I mean it's a matter the, of hours isn't it yeah almost? I mean what well, the process is is that they're retreating from Perone which is where they were building the railway back across the old Somme battlefields into you know th- those areas um, and they were told that the first Royal Dublin Fusiliers were at Bray, so they make their way towards Bray. Then, then when they get there, they're told that they've now got to retreat because of the advances that the Germans are making. So they retreat, and it's only during that retreat that they they meet up with some of the um, first Royal Dublin Fusiliers, not all of them. Um, and... Um, so then they reform with the men that they've met up with um, and start advancing towards the Germans. And it's during this spell of fighting that he gets wounded again. And this time it's, on the, it's, a, it's another gunshot wound and it's to his side. And it's the opposite side to the first one. So uh, that, And he's captured. And he's captured, yeah. And... Uh, nearly everyone that he was advancing with were either killed or they were wounded and captured. Now, the next part of the book, and, and to the end of the book, is, is really his uh, his experiences in a, in a variety of German prisoner yeah. war camps. Yeah. But the main one, and this is an interesting bit of the story, because uh-huh. this is back in his own words, isn't uh-huh. it? This is the bit he wrote for the talk yes. that he presented. Yeah. And I've forgotten the name of the place, Schneider. Schneidnitz. Uh, and that bit's quite it's an exciting bit of the the book although not much happens I'll be honest with you but it's interesting how it's just a typical prisoner of war story you either like it or you don't Uh Uh, I was watching as it happened I was watching Colditz's story whilst I was reading it (laughs) you could see the same things happening Mm. almost not Mm. the escape plans but Mm. the the rest Mm. of it um, uh, this is an interesting bit of the book, uh, I think. Uh, how did, did, you, did you enjoy writing that bit, or, or not, not writing, but providing the background yeah. detail for it? Uh, yeah, I did. Um, I enjoyed. You do- enjoyed all uh, of it, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed doing all of it. But um, yeah, I mean, doing the extra research for the um, the prisoner of war stuff was quite interesting. I mean, the, the Hague Convention and the. Um, some of the um, backstory to the prisoner of war escapes was quite interesting. Now he's eventually released back into you know and uh, and he gets home. I can't remember. Um, December eighteenth. Mm. So yeah, as you, it takes a while for it all. You know, and, and then and then it, it's the one of those anticlimaxes, isn't it? He goes back to work, and then and then he dies. Mm. Uh, now I was thinking, well, all those wounds. 
Uh, but actually, he seems to have died from something unrelated, uh, although the stress and everything else might have caused it. But he didn't die from these wounds, does he? No. Well, look, I got a hold of the um, death certificate, and according to the death certificate, he had bowel cancer. Right. So that, that, that I found that you know mm, that's quite sad. sad. Yeah. It, it is sad because he he was still only what forty odd. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the exact age, but yeah, early forties. Yeah. Now, uh, and then the book finishes with you look, uh, you look at the story in the round, you look at some of his old comrades, you look at yeah, the yeah. reunions they have. And I think this adds quite a nice touch to the book. Um, and, and the, the, the book, uh, uh, it's had some very good reviews from, from, from people, besides me, I mean, who clearly am a friend of yours. But uh, uh, Taff Gillingham's given it a good review. Uh, I think Chris Baker's yeah. given it a good review. And these are names that are respected so mm -hmm. i hope people will think to uh, to buy it you can only buy it by by uh, by uh, going to um uh, uh the internet and i'm going to read it out and i'll put it on the uh, podcast notes uh, you get it from carol.s.hope familiar name at btinternet.com so she's got no exact uh, imagination about her internet provision um and uh, you could buy it and it costs bugger all basically 22 quidish or something like that it's uh, tw 20 pounds but I, I have to charge for postage and packaging 22 as well. quid <laughs> yeah and uh, it's well worth it and i hope you have lots of sales uh last question really is what next for you carol uh, getting out to the battlefields i expect uh, we all hope to well, go to gallipoli be, but uh, uh, that just still seems a de distant dream doesn't it, it does yeah, seem a bit, yeah. Um, as far as writing is concerned I will, I will try and um, do something with the Father Doyle and then there was also quite an interesting officer um, in the uh, Frank speaking story called George Evelyn Cowley who was a bit of a maverick um, and there are papers pertaining to him at the University of Nottingham so I'd quite like to go up there and have a look and see if there's going to be... be strange in them parts. See if there be enough material there for a book. Although is that Cornwall? You'll probably find he was a corporal several times. <laughs> so that's the next project then. Uh, well, I look forward to that. I hope it, it comes out. Um, uh, uh, well, thank you very much, Carol. Oh, it's you're been very welcome. Absolutely wonderful. It's been a, a true pleasure. <laughs> and remember, if do you like a chatter, Gary? I do. Do you like a natter? I do. Well, together we're Chatter Natter. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?